Good morning, and welcome back to The Splash, the podcast where we go behind the headlines with the Herald Sun reporters. Today, the shame file of dodgy childcare operators revealed. Plus, looking back and forward on Australia Day. But first, some headlines from around the world. The UK's COVID vaccine supply is in jeopardy after the EU threatened to block exports of the Belgian-made Pfizer jabs amid a row with the UK-based AstraZeneca. Brussels decided to impose tighter controls on exports of the vaccine after reacting with fury to news that AstraZeneca will deliver 50 million fewer doses to the EU than it had expected. The EU's slow rollout of the vaccine is becoming a political issue across the continent as police in the Netherlands arrested 150 people after rioting broke out for the third night over protests triggered by anger of the coronavirus lockdowns across the Netherlands. Riot police clashed with groups of protesters and used water cannon against looters on Monday in Rotterdam, where the mayor issued a decree broadening police powers of arrest. Susie O'Brien has written the splash in the Herald Sun today. It's about childcare about dodgy childcare operators. Take us through it, Susie. Thank you, James. So we've got a story that's running today saying that more than one childcare provider a week is being shut down or receiving major reprimand by the state government for serious failings of their caring of children. And so we've got examples of more than 230 childcare services around the state who have been disciplined for um, denying children their dignity for caring for them. Yes, th- that is one of the terms, for housing them in unsafe premises and for exposing them to harm. And one of the biggest issues is inappropriate discipline. And you have to wonder, what the hell does that mean? Well, you do. Now, question, is this the big child care operators? Is it the, the ones that are run by councils or is it the small, you know, mum and dad sort of operations that are small do we know what the what the breakdown of the the discipline looks like yeah it's really interesting James so there's more than 230 providers who are on this shame list going back three years and 110 of them are family daycare centers who have been shut down because they were found to have an unacceptable risk to the safety, health and well-being of children. Particularly in the western suburbs, there's this raft of family daycare operators who are putting kids at risk um, by running centres with adults who aren't approved, adults who aren't um, properly trained, uh, there is examples of kids escaping from childcare centres, running across busy roads. And, and I think parents need to know the safety history of the centres that their kids are in. So basically what we're talking about here realistically is a, as a sort of, I don't want to cast aspersions on all sort of small family daycare operators, but there's a kind of a, a it's the bottom end of the sector is where these sort of problems are being picked up, which is unsurprising, really. I mean, company, you know, listed companies uh, have structures in place that make sure that they're conforming to regulations and things like that. When you're talking about, you know, very small businesses, essentially, it's a much more of a, 
Hit. Wild West out there. And you know, there's no there's no excuse for that though, James, because every whether it's the centre that's in the outer western suburbs run by a mum and dad or just a mum or whatever, or one of the biggest operators across the country, they're still subject to the same federal um, laws and the same regulations. And so what we've got are 230 centres in the last three years who have been found to be putting kids at serious harm and serious risk. And so they've been either um, censured or reprimanded in some cases, or about half of them shut down, that the, the risk was seen to be so great. And what concerns me is that these um, examples, these breaches of the regulations, are they're published on the Department of Education website, but they're not publicised. In other states, the state government each year puts out a press release and says, "These are this is the shame file for childcare. Victoria, there's no press release. It's up to journalists like me or like us to go digging for these stories. And parents should know what the, the safety history of their childcare centre is. They shouldn't have to be relying on the Herald Sun to give them that information. It's interesting you bring up other states because last year or in 2019, I can't remember which one, there was, there was a big scandal in New South Wales about corruption uh, in the family daycare centre where, where there was a, a network of people in Western Sydney who were rorting the system. There's no sign anything like that's been going on in Victoria, is there? There's quite a number of childcare centres, uh, family daycare centres, who were um, found to be rorting in terms of not giving parents the payment, like the return of payments that they should have been getting from the federal government. So they were fiddling the books. Um, and so there's a number of them. But the family daycare sector, particularly over the last three years, has been found to be the site of a litany of serious health and safety faults. And example after example of, of family daycare centres in suburbs like Footscray, Tarnie, Traganina, Sunshine, Dandenong, um, putting their kids in unsafe facilities with adults that aren't registered with the government people who have criminal backgrounds, who don't have working with children's checks. And it does worry me because parents are so desperate. We have no choice but to work and we need to have our children in safe facilities. We need to have them in childcare. And so we rely on these um, providers. They've all got state government or federal government um, certification and we assume they're safe. And this story shows that not every childcare centre is safe. Absolutely. And, of course, this is at a time at which, as we know, the uh, federal government's reforms a few years ago that were meant to make it cheaper have now washed through the system. The prices have risen. They're now back where they were before the, the federal government's reforms came in. They're rising at a rate of knots. Uh, the price of childcare is going to be a big political issue going forward. Yeah, and you know what? I think there's been a lot of discussion about the regulation of childcare. How do parents know it's safe? Some of these centres who have 20 or more serious breaches and are under on the watch and act list by the state government haven't had a federal audit for five years. Some of them are failing five years ago on six out of seven serious safety issues and yet they're still continuing to operate. They're still looking after children and they're popping up five years later on a state government list of breaches. You wonder how are these places allowed to continue operating? Very good question. Keep an eye on it. Susie O'Brien, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, James. 
News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winger? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Yesterday, of course, was Australia Day, and as we know, it's not becoming any less contentious. I wanted to talk to Tom Manier today about the Prime Minister's op-ed, which appeared in the Herald Sun yesterday on Australia Day. I thought it was an incredibly clever piece. Uh, I don't uh, usually read to the end of politicians' op-eds. They don't tend to be terribly interesting, but I thought this one, this was incredibly clever in that he is essentially... Uh, stealing a lot of the language of the left. Um, he's acknowledging things that I think John Howard would have struggled to acknowledge. It, there's very little, most fair-minded people to complain about. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I, I tend to agree, James. It was interesting watching, um, you know, we had the Invasion Day rally in Melbourne on Australia Day and I saw some videos going around of um, people chanting, ScoMo is a wanker. Um but I thought probably if they uh, if they read his speech in the Herald Sun yesterday, or sorry, his opinion piece, I should say, there's probably a lot in there that they wouldn't necessarily disagree with. I mean, one of the, the big things about Australia Day um, that you know has been a debate in recent years is that we need to spend more time um, using Australia Day as, as a chance to look back at our, our failures, the, the damage caused by European colonisation, um, the difficulties that caused for Indigenous Australians that are, you know in history and, and the ongoing impact of that. And, and I think you're right. I think, you know, John Howard and, and other Liberals in, in years gone by have sort of struggled to, to get a balance right in um, conceding those issues. But, yeah, I, I'll, I'll read a little bit of Scott Morrison's piece because there's a couple of lines that really stood out to me that, you know, he talks about the fact that um, there's no escaping or cancelling the fact that Australia Day is, is the day when our, our land changed forever. Um but he says, our stories since that day have been of sorrow and joy, loss and redemption, failure and success. Um, we are now a nation of more than 25 million stories, all important, all unique and all to be respected. Whether it is the story of our First Nations people's strong, ancient and proud culture and their survival in the face of dispossession and colonisation, or the forsaken souls who came as convicts, uh, as convicts, not to start a new world, but because they had been banished from the old one. That is exactly what I was going to read. You've beaten me to a bit. That line, those series of lines, particularly the tying together of the Indigenous story with the fact that this was not, this country was not founded as a new world, they were not pilgrims, uh, they were jailers and prisoners. It's very difficult to argue against this. You can say, well, once the, the convicts were part of an imperial project, whatever. But the fact of the matter is that a huge number of the people who arrived on those ships in 1788, we're not there out of choice. Yeah, and look, one of the things that I think is worth pointing out here that um, has been overlooked this month, we had Morrison um, make some comments the other day that he was absolutely howled down for. He said it was not a flash day, um, January 26th, for the people that came on the first fleet. I think what people missed in that, and I think I think his language was a bit clumsy, but the reason... Oh, no, that, I, think but, it was, but, I think it was brilliant, well, because flash is a... Flash is a term from current. It's a convict era term. It's, well, that's what was so clever about it. Well, but but I think what people miss in it though too, because he was criticised for it in terms of how he compared the two experiences. But I think the point he was trying to make though, which a lot of people hadn't realised, is that his 
fifth great grandfather, William Roberts, was one of the people on those ships. Um, he was sent out here for stealing five and a half pound of yarn valued at nine shillings. Um, and so, you know, he has a particularly um, personal view about the First Fleet and, and, yeah, and how Australia was developed. Now, I guess, you know, the tricky thing that I think, you know, he probably didn't necessarily get right in that one grab was, um, I suppose, comparing the two experiences. But but it recognising the two experiences of Australia Day is pretty crucial. And, I mean, the other thing that sort of stood out to me that this is going a bit back earlier in, in January, but I thought it was just worth mentioning. Um, I don't know if you remember, we had the sort of saga that kicked off the Australia Day debate this year when we had... Um, an ad by the Australia Day Council that was airing at Cinema Nova in Carlton that someone complained about, they took it down straight away. The interesting thing about this is that, you know, that sort of scandal raged for a couple of days and we, we got into the usual debate about evasion, Invasion Day and that sort of thing. But the ad itself, you know, talks about celebrating Australia Day, but it also talks about a history that it says is painful and raw. I think this is language that's really come a long way to, you know, in a mainstream sense from you know, the Australia Day Council to, to, I think, do a much better job of kind of acknowledging the difficulties of January 26. This this is not your John Howard black arm fan view of Australian history. Whatever you think about the Liberal Party and Morrison and, you know, obviously the left loathe him because he's a Liberal, but the idea that he's seeking to stoke culture wars isn't, it's just, it's actually the opposite. A prime minister who was seeking to, to to dial up the heat in the culture wars would not have altered the national anthem uh, in the way he did without any real debate. I mean, if you're talking about a captain's call, that's as big a captain's call as uh, knighting the Duke of Edinburgh. It was a unifying move. You can, as an aside for a minute, reflect on the fact how many people would have reacted if Malcolm Turnbull had done that. Mm. Uh, but moving on from that... He knows when to hold them and he knows when to fold them. That's the thing that is making him very, very difficult for the Australian Labor Party to get a beat on. Mm. And I think his actions and his rhetoric around this, um, I thought, were kind of interestingly sort of reflected in the poll that um, came out in the uh, the nine Fairfax papers earlier this week, um, where it showed, I think, something like 28% of Australians um, supported changing the date, which some people thought was quite a low number. But the other figure that really struck me in that poll, and I think speaks to where the Prime Minister's head is that head is at on this issue, is that basically half of Australians think that the date will change in the next decade. I know Bill Shorten said a similar thing this week. He said he thought it was inevitable that the date will change. And I think kind of as we see that the kind of the way you know, a Liberal coalition government is, is attempting to handle Australia Day and that historical shift in their in their rhetoric. I think it is seeing, um, it's sort of recognising that the mood is shifting and that also, while most Australians, um, you know, like Australia Day, support Australia Day being on January 26, it's sort of not that chest-beating, you know, flag-waving patriotism that the cliche might be. But I think it, People love their country. They also realise that the failures in the past and, and, you know, the mistakes that have been made in that and the difficulties, obviously, um, caused by um, European colonisation and and what that's done to Aboriginal Australia. And I think that's why, you know, I mean, I sort of find this talking to a lot of people. They're not necessarily saying we should change the date now, but when you present them an idea like, well, what if we move Australia Day to the date we eventually become a republic? Most people will go, yeah, that's a great idea. That makes sense. It sorts out all the problems. Everyone can get along. We'll have a 
date that we can all you know celebrate and enjoy. And I think Look, that's... I'm sorry, Tom. You've, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to break in there and point out that Fairfax uh, Nine Papers. What well, they had some sad news for their readers this week that <laughs> <laughs> on on the Republican front, uh, the it, it appears that the Republic is least popular amongst the young. Which was quite So we might be waiting a long yeah. time. Well, it's curious though. I feel like no matter who you talk to, that there seems to be a view that when the Queen sadly passes away at some point, that maybe that will shift the debate. And I think, you know, that will be either, you know, probably a make or break moment for the Republican movement. But yeah, but uh, and look, I mean, those but numbers... Then we go, but then we're only like one heartbeat away from Wills and Kate and everybody <laughs> loves them. And they'd be back, but yeah. And then but there's then... George, like it's just, it's an endless... The, the, the royal family showbiz package has just got a great cast at the moment. Yeah, I reckon. But then we get Wills and Kate, and then we get the soap opera with Megs and Harry, and you know how's that going to go? Oh, they've been written out. They're in, they're, they're, to put it in, sometimes they're not in the Walking Dead. They're in fear of the Walking Dead. They're in the one that's on the west coast, of California. They're not coming back. They're not coming back. Mm, well, where does where does that leave us, James? Do you think um, do you think we're keeping the keeping Australia Day? You know, as it is for the foreseeable future, do, do you buy Bill Shorten's view that um, you know change is inevitable at some point? I think if there was an easy climb down from Australia Day, I'd, this guy would grab it. But I don't think there is. Yeah, look, and I would probably say that while you know I think Scott Morrison's done a pretty good job getting his language right around you know the meaning of Australia Day and January twenty sixth this year, I think. The, the bigger challenge for him more than whether the data is changing or not is what he does in the you know, 364 days between January 26 this year and next year. I mean, you know, he's got an issue around um, how exactly a, a voice to parliament is being designed and, and that's been a debate that's been ongoing. I think, you know, closing the gap targets, we just have not done a good enough job of for years. Indigenous, indigenous incarceration rates are still awful in a lot of states. Um I know these debates aren't as sort of easy for people to get into and they don't sort of have the, I suppose, you know, we can't opinion poll them in the same way and go, do you support changing the date or not? Um, I think if Scott Morrison wants to be taken, you know, really seriously about this and, and do the right thing, it's dealing with some of those issues that's the challenge. And I think that's also the message for the people on the other side of the debate who don't like Scott Morrison and, and would never vote for a Liberal government. Um, it's you know, obviously symbolism and, and recognition and days like Australia Day are really important. But I think it's also pretty crucial not to get caught up in that at the expense of trying to use your sort of political capital and, and oxygen to tackle the sort of more endemic problems that are faced by Indigenous Australians today. That's true. I still think that, the, that poor old Ken Wyatt is on a hiding to nothing. Uh, anything that he can, that they can come up with, that's going to sail through the coalition party room, is not going to satisfy Black Australia. That's just the reality of it. If you're going to talking about putting it into the constitution, you've got it's going to make the same-sex marriage plebiscite look like a 200-person Ipsos poll. Like it's just not. Yeah, the con- it, yeah. This is going to be. This is going to be. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really difficult. People are going to have to. Sp- People are going to spend a lot of capital on it. Um, I, I've my my personal view is it's not going to happen. I don't think I, I just cannot see in, in 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 an environment like this that we're in at the moment, where things are, people are head, tending towards the heading towards the ex- extreme. I don't see it passing. Um, mm, and I think 
yeah and i think and it becomes you know i think what it ultimately boils down to is two people really i think it's a test for scott morrison and anthony albanese or whoever is leading the labor party but we assume it'll be elbow um i think ultimately it's it's a challenge for them because yeah no matter what sort of model um we end up with in terms of that voice to parliament if, if it's going to be in the constitution yeah there are going to be a lot of people in the coalition who won't want it i think there'll be a lot of people in the labor party who will think whatever the version is won't go far enough and it's a question for those two leaders can can they really come up with something bipartisan that they can sell to australia because yeah if it's not bipartisan from the two leaders of the two major parties it's it's not going to happen no, it's not going to happen. And speaking of Anthony Albanese, we spoke about him earlier in the week. He bobbed up yesterday on Australia Day with a tweet, with a suggestion. What was he? What's what's the latest thought bubble? He was suggesting of- that a well that the referendum for constitutional recognition for First Australians should be held on January twenty sixth as a unifying moment for the nation, um, which really <laughs> did not go down well on every- the Twitter. <laughs> Well, no, it didn't go down. I actually read it and I thought, what, every January we're going to have it? Or like, <laughs> next year, the year after? When are we going to do this, Albo? Like- <laughs> He's yet to set a year, as I assume as soon as uh, as soon as Labor gets in. Uh, but no, it let's, was not let's, well received. Let's tie these two very divisive issues together. That's the way to do it, mate, isn't it? Mm, yeah, that might, that might be a bit problematic. Uh, it certainly would will be. Uh, Tom and here, it's a pleasure talking to you as always. Uh, I hope you had a happy Australia Day. I hope you ate some lamb. Uh, We'll talk again soon. Thanks, James. Talk soon. You've been listening to The Splash, the Herald Sun's news podcast, coming to you Monday to Friday. If you enjoyed it, tune in. Tell your friends about it. Give us a review. And make sure you go to the Herald Sun website, heraldsun.com.au, for more news on all these and many other great stories. Are you ready to get an inside look at crime from someone who has investigated some of Australia's worst crimes? It was like Aladdin's cave. The luminol found bloodied footprints and bloodied handprints on a wall. So it's just like a horror movie. Former homicide detective Gary Jubilant sits down with cops, crims, addicts, victims, small-time cheats and big-town lawyers as they tell their incredible stories. My house got raided. Next thing you know, I got bail refused. Next thing you know, I'm on a truck to Parkley Prison. Listen to I Catch Killers early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts.